It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Stop and Search on Scrooby's Pips Distraction Pieces Network, brought to you by Acast in association with Elite UK. Yeah, you know that by now, don't you? Here we go. Behind you. Thanks so much for joining us on Stop and Search. So, this is going to be our first two-part. Why? Because the live show ended up running about two and a half, three hours, and we thought every single word of that was just magnificent. It turned into debates. It was just so insightful. So we thought we're going to have to go for it. We're going to have to put this out in two parts, and that's what we're going to do. So hopefully next week, if Nicky the producer and I can get our fingers out, the second part will come out then. We've got Johan Hari, who is the author of Chasing the Scream. He's a journalist, a friend of ours. Chasing the Scream is just such a comprehensive work on the war on drugs. It's, it's so enlightening. It opens your eyes to addiction, all our environmental prejudices that go with that. It is just a brilliant work that you need to read. That's, that's urging you to read it. Please do. We've also got Tom Gash, who is the author of Criminal, The Truth Behind Why People Do Bad Things. And Tom somehow has managed to make a book on crime and criminology really interesting and entertaining, which is a backhanded compliment. But it is so entertaining. It just it's, goes into realms that you just don't expect. And I can't recommend it enough. So thanks a lot, Tom. And also we've got Livy Haydock, who is a journalist. She is a producer. She is a presenter on BBC. She's quite literally covered the war on drugs. She has been out there in the Philippines. She's been out there on the front lines of the war on drugs in this country, in the UK. And I think she's got a documentary coming out fairly soon as well. So thank you so much, Livy, for joining us again. Uh, such a good voice to have to this conversation on is addiction a crime? That was the loose frame that we went under, but the conversation goes far more other places than that. Just a quick shout out as well. Um, if you're in London in November, the 3rd to the 5th, I think it is, please get down to the Museum of Drugs, which is going to be in collaboration with our friends, Release Drugs. They're an organisation that is celebrating their 50th birthday. And to commemorate that, they're having the Museum of Drugs down to Tanner Street in London, where there's going to be all sorts of things going on. If you're listening to this on the Acast app, which is acast.com slash stop and search, links will be scrolling by now to let you know all, all the details of how you can get down there or just Google release drugs and you'll find them 
And I think that's all the shout-outs I need to do, other than, obviously, our own social media, which is at UKLeap on Twitter, Facebook, slash UKLeap.org, and find us on the internet, which is UKLeap.org. So, here we go, then. Is addiction a crime? Um, Johan, can you introduce yourself? I have to confess something slightly awkward, which uh, you might realise as I speak that I start hacking and coughing. I have been afflicted by a problem related to addiction. I spent um, uh, a load of time about a month ago in a part of Sao Paulo in Brazil called Cracolandia. A crackland, uh, interviewing lots, I spent about five days with a load of people who have crack addictions... And it turns out they've given me tuberculosis. <laughs> um, I know, it's unfortunate. Uh, I feel like a Bronte sister, so this might be my last appearance. It turns out you treat it with um, massive amounts of antibiotics and Coke Zero. So, um, but anyway, if I start like hacking, coughing, begin to die, don't take it personally, it's not any of you. Uh, yeah, what did you want me to do? Uh, just quick introduction. Oh, right, I, I sorry. <laughs> my name's Johan Hari, I wrote a book called Chasing the Scream, and I'm probably about to die. Okay. <laughs> So, uh, based on that, my name's uh, Tom Gash, and I'm also probably about to die. But I reckon I've probably got a couple of weeks more than Johan. So, uh, that gives me a chance to mention that I'm, I'm the author of uh, Criminal, The Truth About Why People Do Bad Things. Used to advise on crime uh, in the UK government about 10 years ago, and uh, subsequently have carried on doing that uh, in various places around the world. And I'm very interested in the uh, discussion we're having today, because I think there are a lot of misunderstandings about the relationship between crime and drugs. And I think that that's probably at the core of getting to better drug policy as well as better crime policy to disentangle some of the mess. And Livy. I'm Livy Haydock. I'm a crime and hostile environment television producer who's just become a presenter as well. And Neil Woods, who are you? Oh, I used to be an undercover cop and um, now I work with you, don't I? And now I'm chairman of Leap UK. Uh, So please welcome our fantastic guest. This one is, is genuinely exciting to me because, I mean, all three of your works have just been... Have, it's, when we're in drug policy, we see a lot of things, don't we? We see a lot of films, we see a lot of books. Uh, we even make a lot of films and books, as, as you know, between Neil and I have done. But you, you three have done it so well, and I'm not just saying that because you're here, because, you know, part of this has to be complimentary, but it's not. You, you have genuinely... With most done... guests, you go, you know, it's a bit of a disappointment. To be honest, you're quite shit, but... <laughs> I guess we're going to have to talk now. <laughs> say a flashback, Ronnie. That's what. <laughs> so, but you have just written things that I think most people can be accessible to. And I'm looking at you, Johan, is that before Yo- Chasing the Screen came out, the, the debate was a little bit stagnant almost. And I think it's fair to say, I don't know if you agree, Neil, that you did reinvent this somewhat. Is, is that... Would you take that on board? Would you say that you did? Don't, don't be humble. Uh, no, I, I think uh, I think I think the debate has been transforming for a long time, and um, I think if this book had come out ten years before, it would not have got the reaction it has because there's been an amazing amount of work of people changing people's minds just across the whole culture. Even I'm going to start with a really low bar reference, but the other day um, I couldn't sleep and I started on YouTube watching old episodes of EastEnders. 
And I don't know if you remember the depiction of the character, some of you are too young to remember this, but there was a character in EastEnders called Nick Cotton, who in the, I guess this would have been the mid-80s, was evil, right? And the way you knew he was evil is because he was a drug addict. And this was, it was taken for granted, he's a drug addict, he's evil, those things were synonymous. You would never get that in EastEnders now, right? It'd be unthinkable, right? Because the culture has changed so radically, because ordinary people have done an amazing amount of work humanising people with addiction problems, changing people's minds. So I think there's a, a big change that's been happening in the culture. It's analogous to what's happened with gay people. You know, um, I'm gay. Uh, you know, when I recently showed one of my nephews who's a teenager some of the things that were on the front page of The Sun when, when I was the age he is now, 16... And he literally couldn't believe it. He was like, did people ring the police? Like, I think that's really worth us bearing in mind how rapidly these things can change. And I just the other thing I want to say at the start is, I think the work you guys are doing at Leap UK is so important on this. You know, everywhere I've you know, been to lots of different countries in the world to see this debate. And everywhere, the most effective people in, sh- in shifting the debate have been Leap branches. I was just in Brazil, in, in the United States. The, the, the people who we most need to shift, who are conservatively-minded people are so much more inclined to listen to a message like this from a policeman than they are from someone like me or someone with an addiction problem or lots of other people. So the work you're doing, and, and you know, people who haven't read it, Neil's book is the best book that's ever been written about the British drug war. I can't recommend it highly enough. Um, and, I, and it's really having an impact. So I think that, that you know, we're finding audiences because people like all of you in the audience and the people listening to this podcast are doing this work of changing people's minds person by person, you know, um, place by place. That, that really taps into your book, uh, Tom, is how you've managed to really get... Uh, you, 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 in your book, you, you boil it down to two categories, heroes and villains, uh, victims and survivors... That's how society views crime, isn't it? And, and the way that we deal with the, the environmentals around that. It's interesting because hearing that, I think there are lots of similarities between the way in which people view people who commit crime, actually, and the way in which people can view people who commit drugs. When in actual fact, there's obviously not uniform overlap by any means between the two groups. We've got this false idea, I think, that drugs cause crime. Uh, whereas there are lots of people who have heroin addictions who will go into withdrawal rather than commit crimes. And uh, so there is a connection, but often you'll find that the people who are involved in crime who use drugs committed the crime before they uh, became heavily addicted. Their relationships are much more complicated than we think, and yet we like this really simplistic sort of account of good people and bad people, and often people who commit crime at any point in their lives are never forgiven, uh, and we, we put them in this category, and that's the same thing that we do with, with drug users. So I think we need to transform the way we think about uh, uh, people who commit crime as well as the way we transform people about the way people think about people who take drugs. When, when we was, uh, I think it was yesterday, we was putting out the tweet for today's event and we had someone um, that tweeted our mutual accounts and they said, no, because the frame of this, this event is, is addiction crime. And she came back with, um, <coughs> no, addiction isn't a crime, but acquisitive crime, burglary, things like that is. So straight away she made, she made the jump that heroin use is synonymous with acquisitive crime and burglary and things like that. Is, is that a problem? Are we ever going to be able to get Look, away from that? There, you can't get away from the fact that there are some links. So people who do have serious habits 
do commit crime to fund their habits in some cases, but not all. And so I think, you know, most people in the sort of policy community who look at the evidence are pretty convinced that for seriously addictive, high-harm drugs like heroin, the solution to this is to have supervised injection and possibly prescription heroin for people who are methadone resistant uh, and to think seriously about this as a public health problem, not just a crime problem. King's College London uh, did, a, did a trial of this in the UK which people, not many people know about, which was giving heroin to addicts. Uh, the results of it are in incredibly encouraging, both in terms of the uh, outcomes in terms of addiction and health, but in terms of the outcomes uh, for crime as well. And I think we, we get ourselves into this sort of knot when we're dealing with all sorts of aspects of crime policy, when we have this sort of instinctive zero tolerance type approach rather than a crime a harm reduction approach which is what we need in drugs policy and crime policy we need to think about crime and the harm that it causes and ask ourselves the question of how do we minimize that harm as much as possible and in my view we can do much much more to prevent crime than we do now what we tend to do is we respond to crime after it happens but what we've learned over the last 30 50 years is that we can actually we can actually make interventions that reduce crime they're often things that are to do with straightforward security so for example you know you're, you're six times less likely today to walk out of your house and find your car stolen than you were 25 years ago. Incredible drop in, in crime. Has anything changed in the nature of our morality as a society? I don't think so. I think what's happened is immobilizers, central locking, car alarms, all these things that deterred your average joyrider and petty crook. Now cars are predominantly nicked by people who are really determined to go out and commit crime. It's much more professional. You have to go on the dark net and get your uh, electronic device to overcome the existing technology. All or you use one of the other tactics, which is to break in a house and steal the keys. So the nature of crime changes fundamentally when we impose these preventative solutions. But the impact of that, a six-fold reduction in car crime, is so huge compared to the impact that we have from an enforcement-driven approach to crime, one that focuses on reducing the crime, preventing the problem before it happens. And I think that we need to shift this focus in crime away from enforcement and punishment, just as we need to do the same around the drugs issue. There's a great quote towards the end of your book, and it's, define the issue as crime, not criminals. And that sums it up, doesn't it? it it's, it's in the environment. It's, it's, we're so... I don't know, we've got this programming to think in terms of heroes and villains, as your book says. And I think now is the perfect opportunity to bring Livy into this because you have seen the absolute emblem of what zero tolerance is now, which is yeah. the Philippines. If you haven't seen Livy's uh, documentary on iPlayer, please do go and watch The Deadliest Place to Deal Drugs because it's just horrific. But in the the best possible terms to watch. <laughs> it's a great film. Um, what was it like making that? <laughs> it, it is that zero tolerance policy and the way that um, I think society is the most extreme that I've ever come across was the Philippines. And I don't know if you're aware of the situation, but um, the president, Rodrigo Duterte, came to power in June last year and his platform for his popularity was that he would rid the country of drugs, full stop. Um, and by in doing that, he's um, eliminated or killed 7,000 people to the point when I was there. 
um, and it's via vigilantes, it's the police doing the killings. Um, and so, but the extraordinary thing is, even talking to the police um, who aren't necessarily involved in the killings, but, you know, your normal kind of bobbies who are out patrolling, you say to them, like, how bad was the drug problem before the killings began, before Duterte came into power? And um, they'd say, oh, no, we, we didn't know it was that bad. We didn't know it was that bad. And yet the users... Um, they, I think the average use in the Philippines is something like, it's way below the global average, it's like 2.3%. We're 4.3%, I think, in the UK. Um, the States is up to 10. Um, and, and it's that pure demonisation of a drug user and a drug dealer. I think um, our culture, since sort of 80s, 90s, the drug dealer is this monster <laughs> who hides in the shadows. And I think users get that put on them too and then um in somewhere like the philippines it's gone so far that people are being killed for it i think there are lots of misconceptions about the whole world of drug dealing um we are encouraged by law enforcement and i think i mean in a sense this is probably a disagreement perhaps between neil and i so let's get right into it um it's there's this there's this interest in presenting that most drug dealers are organised, sophisticated, working groups and are incredibly violent. Most drug trades are not violent. They're peaceful. There's not a lot of violence around lots of drug markets. You'll find violence around some drug markets, but, you know, really not all. I remember going out on a police operation in, on the South Coast and they were saying, well, there's these guys coming down from Manchester and they're dealing drugs. And, you know, saying, and so I was saying, well, you know, how do, how do the local dealers feel about that? And they were like, oh, yeah, they're not very pleased about it. But, you know, what can you do? And, and so I think the assumption that drugs is always associated with violence around it is wrong because it's very hard to control territory when there are people who are mobile and can go and get their drugs from different spots. So the tactics that can be used... Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not denying there is violence around drug market, but you can find drug markets that are not so violent. I know Johan and I are going to disagree yeah. on this as well. Yeah. Well, I think it's important to... I, I think you're, you make an important point. I think it's important to explain to people the way in which um, prohibition causes violence because this is popularly misunderstood. We have this phrase, I've been away from Britain for ages and I just got back and I've caught up on this, the horrendous debate about spice, which is ludicrous, right? And contains a lot of errors that I hope we'll get to later. But one of them surrounds violence. When you hear this phrase, drug-related violence, what you picture is someone getting fucked up, going out and attacking someone, right? That's what you picture. There's a very good study of this by Professor Paul Goldstein. He studied everything that was labelled as drug-related violence in New York City in 1986. And what he found is 3% of the drug-related crime was that, right? It was someone using drugs, going crazy. The vast majority, the overwhelming majority, was a completely different thing. Best way to explain it is... If any of you get really depressed by what we're talking about and you decide to go to that bar and steal a bottle of vodka, right? I can see a bottle of vodka from here. It's weird being in a bookshop and seeing vodka, but anyway. Um, if you try to steal that bottle of vodka and that nice man with the beard catches you, he'll call the police and the police will come and take you away. So he doesn't need to be violent. He doesn't need to be intimidating. He's got the power of the law to uphold his property rights. Now, if you get depressed and decide instead to go a little bit round the corner and buy a ba steal a bag of weed or a bag of coke, obviously if that guy catches you, he can't ring the police, right? The police would come and arrest him. He has to fight you. Now, when you're a dealer, and I think you're quite right about this, 
you don't want to be having a fight every day, right? Obviously. So you want to establish a reputation for being so frightening that people aren't going to be so foolish as to come and take you on. There's one sociologist, a French sociologist, who said that the prohibition creates a culture of terror. And if you want to know how much of that violence is caused by prohibition, just ask yourself, where are the violent alcohol dealers? Does the head of Smirnoff go and kill the head of Heineken, right? Is that guy at the bar going to send someone to go and murder the people in the pub around the corner? No, that never happens. It exactly happened under alcohol prohibition. Everyone in this room knows who Al Capone is. We're all afraid of Pablo Escobar. Well, not anymore. We're all afraid of El Chapo. Not so much anymore. We're all afraid of Mexican cartel leaders. And we're not afraid of the head of Smirnoff. The only difference is one product is prohibited and the other is illegal. Now, it's true that most of the drug trade, of course, in a society like Britain, it's not like northern Mexico where I was where you've got massacres every day. It's not like Brazil where I just was or the Philippines. Well, the Philippines, it's the state murdering people. But, um, or Brazil where I just was where 30,000 people are murdered every year in this war for drugs that's caused by prohibition. But, you know, any murder is... Uh, obviously, I know you agree. I'm not making this point against you. A huge number of these stabbings that are happening in London are rival drug gangs, right? When you follow the stories down into what's going on, we have a war for drugs that is caused by prohibition. That's a small aspect of the overall drug trade. Obviously, the kids in my nephew's school who are selling weed and pills, they're not going around stabbing each other. They're, uh, you know, in, well, my brother's kids are at a kind of middle-class school. But the fact that there's this violence, the fact that it's only a small proportion of the trade in a country like Britain doesn't mean that, that it's not catastrophic when it does play I, out. I agree there are some harms there, but... I also think we need to be really careful about overstating the fact that these stabbings and gun crimes in London are about territory, because yeah. most of them are about stupid stuff over girls, yeah. about disrespect, you know, the stuff that people, when they're young and make really rubbish decisions, decide to make turn into World War Three. But, but the problem is those are not separate things. That when you understand that when something is prohibited, you cannot afford to have a reputation for, for letting people take advantage of you, right? Because then they'll just take everything you've got. I spent a lot of time with drug dealers in, in, in the South Bronx who explained this, and Baltimore who explained this very well to me. So establishing a reputation for being, you can't take the piss out of me, you can't have a trivial slight against me, that is related in part, not entirely, and it's important to say not entirely, but that is related to your desire to protect the fact that you have no legal recourse to protect your your property. Ask any mafia boss, right, that you can't allow a little slight to go past. You've got to deal with that. But you're That's... talking about organised criminal groupings no, when, even when casual people... casual drug dealing is like this. They, they completely... Most people who deal drugs in, say, London will be predominantly trying to minimise their risk and exposure to other people. They are trying to deal with one-on-one -on -one transactions with people they trust, in like, like any sort of one-to-one -one deal that is being done. That is what people do. To set yourself up as a drug dealer, you need to know someone who sells drugs and someone who wants to buy drugs. And people will try and insulate themselves from as much nonsense as possible if they're smart. If they're not smart, they may, they may have some conflictual transactions, they may be taken advantage of, and you may have violence around these sort of situations. But most of the flows of drugs do not necessarily involve huge amounts of violence. I, I do think as well, though, that you've got a, um, and I'm all anti-drug prohibition, I really am, but at the same time, certain drugs do have really, really unpleasant effects on people, and people do react. Same with alcohol. You, you know, so I can't drink. I don't drink because I can't handle it. But... 
certain drugs like meth for example it's a particularly nasty drug and um you know you're horny on it and i've been in situations where things can turn pretty nasty very quickly because of the type of drug it is or cocaine that people handle it in different ways and they're people who you know violence can happen when you wouldn't normally it wouldn't normally happen but it's because they're on a drug that they don't know what it's cut with because it's illegal it's and and people want to bulk their profits they're going to put all sorts in there so you don't know what you're taking and so i do think that users you can't completely say that users are complete victims because yeah they make awful judgments when they're on certain drugs but it depends what drug you're taking and you know you're not just a victim because you've used drugs i think neil wants to get in on this point yeah, I mean, uh, I, I can do agree with Tom that the vast majority of drug deals are completely passive. And, and, and in fact, most most drug users will go their entire um, drug using, using lives without ever actually experiencing any violence. So you make a really important point. However, the, where, where the violence comes in, and I'll, I'll just describe a scenario to you. I, there was lots of aspects of policing I wasn't particularly good at. But one thing, one talent I did have is to get people to um, give me information. And that would come in the form of a visit to the cell. It would be all logged in the custody record, and I would go in there, and I, and I knew exactly what was going on in their mind. If they're looking at five years, and they know that if they give me some information, they can get that reduced to three, I then have to convince them that that's safe for them to do so. That's part of the charm. That's part of the reasoning. Now, when that person is sat in that cell and they're desperate, to avoid five years in prison, they are then going through their head to work out who they are most scared of. Now, it is a fact that the most successful organised crime groups, and in particular the most successful notorious gangsters in the country, are successful because they are the most terrifying, because they understand that moment in that cell that people will be tempted to go through. As someone sat at the front there, who uh, you probably know someone in Manchester who has a reputation of having made someone drink petrol, taunted them for a while, locked, locked them in the boot of a car, and then set fire to them. He made sure he had witnesses, but even though everyone in Manchester knows who did this, it's because it created his reputation. Um, he's not going to get caught for it because everyone's so terrified of him. So... So whilst I take your point, Tom, it's true that the vast majority of drug dealing, and, and you know, that point should be observed, but the reason that I emphasise it from a policing perspective is that generally the public don't understand that, and I think they really do need to understand it, that it is actually the action of policing and the methods of policing that actually adds to and creates that violence. I think, that's a, um, I think uh, another re- a really important point, I think the, you know, one of the reasons I care about this issue is because we had a lot of addiction in my family but I actually think the biggest moral issue surrounding the war on drugs is something else and it's really worth stressing the violence is terrible but relatively limited in Britain now any violence that's preventable should be prevented and we could end this violence the same way there are no violent alcohol dealers it's relatively limited in Britain but on the supply chains to Britain the violence is unimaginably catastrophic. You know, more people have died in Colombia and Mexico, where I've reported from in drug war-related violence by some estimates than have died in Syria. More people are having their heads cut off in northern Mexico than are having their heads cut off in Syria. That war for drugs created by prohibition, which runs directly to our country and to all the other countries that enforce the war on drugs, is, um, is, is the single most important issue that we should be talking about. And, um, 
you know, I think a lot about a lot of the people that I met for Chasing the Scream. One of the people that I, I tell the, the story in the book about, a guy called uh, Rosalio Retta, I got to know. He's a young... Well, he must be 27 now, but between the ages of 13 and 17 in, in, in Juarez and in uh, other parts of northern Mexico, he butchered or beheaded about 70 people. And... Uh, I think a lot, a lot, a lot about him. But the so there's the question of supply routes. I just want to come back to saying Livy said. Um, I, I, Livy's film, by the way, anyone who hasn't watched it, I really recommend her. Absolutely brilliant film about the Philippines. It's heartrending. Um, I think he made an important point that I think a lot of people think and is worth. And I thought and is really worth teasing out, which is. And I'll come back to spice. If you look at how spice is being reported, what we're being told is this is a, it's a synthetic cannabinoid. This is a drug which uniquely makes people go crazy. They take it, they go mad, they lose their shit. We see these images of people around Manchester Piccadilly uh, losing the plot. My, my sister happens to be a psychiatric nurse in, in that part of England, so I know a bit about this as well. Um, one thing that's interesting looking at the history of the drug war is it's always claimed that there is one unique drug that drives people mad. So initially it was claimed to be cannabis, right? This is reported that in the 1930s when cannabis is first banned, cannabis drives you crazy, right? Then when enough people knew enough people who used cannabis, oh, well, some people go crazy, but it's a small minority. They migrated to the claim about cocaine. When people know enough cocaine users, they migrate to crack. When that stops, they migrate to meth. The things that most surprised me, the person who's done the best research on this is Professor Carl Hart at Columbia University. And he's shown... It's the same proportion of people go crazy for every drug. Alcohol's the same as meth. It's the same as the rest of them. About 10% of people develop addiction problems and a very small subset of them go crazy. Now, there are reasons for that. I'm happy to talk about it. There are places that have significantly reduced the people who have those problems. But focusing on the idea that there's a uniquely evil drug is misleading. If you look at why are we having a... Well, I don't want to go on too long, so I'll come back to that. But... I, no, I've, I think, um, I've, I've, personally, I've been around so many people who, with all drugs, can turn particularly nasty, and the nastiness does seem specific to each of those drugs. It does. Like, so you get your raging cokeheads, and you get, and you get your, um, you know, the sexual thing with meth, and it, it does feel that people react in certain ways it's the same with like that's the same reason someone would choose to take coke or they would choose to take ecstasy for example ecstasy is your fun your loving drug take meth that's the that's the extreme end of that well i think it, what you're saying is is really important and of course the cases you're seeing are real what you're not seeing are all the people who use that drug and, and don't fine. react that yeah, way no, yeah no of course of course uh, but at the same time you i, I think you can't in the same way that people react differently to different drugs you can't also say that you know um drug users are harmless because yeah, it's no, people no one says, individuals no one react differently that. to different things but no know? one says that no one says alcohol is harmless yeah. right we, everyone in this room will know someone who's used alcohol and done something really stupid harmful or mean right and in relation to crime um there's absolutely no doubt that the harms surrounding alcohol outweigh the harms surrounding drugs in the uk in terms of the, yeah. the consequent knock-on harms in terms of violence uh, and other things it's much more implicated in crime in lots of ways and so i think where we get to with this is, in a sense, all of us think that, you know, used badly, drugs can have yeah. very harmful effects. We think that... But, and we all, I think, will think that the current regimes for dealing with drugs aren't probably as effective as they could yeah. be. Um, the question is going to get interesting is what we think the answer to it is and what versions of ending a sort of blanket prohibitionist approach different ones of us 
sort of support. Because my concerns, I think most people would share this, are in a sense one thing that the alcohol companies have done successfully, that tobacco companies did very successfully, is they drove use and demand and dependency in ways that we should all take note of if we are interested in about a more controlled, more sensible approach to drugs. We, what we don't want, I don't think, is absolute blanket liberalisation, and some of the US states look like they're getting this wrong. Um, what we need is to start thinking about real radical re regulation of types perhaps that we haven't seen before. We might even need to think about communist <laughs> things like sort of state supply, right? This might be the, the way in which to start dealing with this problem. Again, and the other thing is we, we, we're dealing with areas of huge unknowns when we're thinking about what, how to change drug policy. So what I always advocate in terms of crime policy, I would assume should also be applied in drugs policy, which is whatever we do, let's try it at a smallish scale and observe carefully what the impacts are over a period of time, develop and grow. We've got this global laboratory where lots of different experiments are happening. Canada this year will be legalising uh, marijuana. We've obviously got all the different states in the US that have done medical marijuana. We've got lots of different approaches to heroin use. I mentioned Switzerland, Germany, Netherlands. They all do have heroin-assisted treatment, so they give heroin addicts heroin. We know a bit about, from those experiments, what works and what doesn't. The question is sort of, in the UK, what should we do? And just to come back, I think it comes back to the concern that Livy has, which is a totally legitimate concern that lots of people have, which is to say, you know, you see this effect, apparent effect of a drug. It's important to understand what you're seeing when you see people in... Let's think about Manchester Piccadilly, right? Uh, I've not been there since the spice problems, but it's part of Britain I know fairly well. What you're seeing is not the effect of the drug. You're seeing the effect of the drug plus something else. I think it's really worth us thinking about what that something else is because we know that most people who take the drug don't react that way and don't experience those things. One of the things, I apologise to anyone who's heard me say this before, but one of the things that really opened up my ability to understand that is, is uh, an experiment that I learned about and I got to know the people who'd done it and then I saw lots of places that have acted on the insights from this experiment. If you had said to me before I started writing my book <clears throat> what causes, for example, heroin addiction, I would have looked at you like you were really thick and I would have said, well... The clue's in the name, right? Of course, we think that, that, that heroin addiction is caused by heroin. We think cocaine addiction is caused by cocaine. We think that if we seize the next 20 people who walk past this shop on Tottenham Court Road and we forcibly injected them all with, with heroin every day for a month, at the end of that, they'd all be heroin addicts for a simple reason that there are chemical hooks in the, in the drug and that's what causes addiction. That's, that's what I believe. That's what I literally thought I'd seen in my own family. The first thing that alerted me to the fact there's something not right about that, when it was explained to me, in plenty of places, Britain is one of them, if you get hit by a truck, and if any of you step out of this event and get hit by a truck, and you break your hip, you'll be taken to hospital, and likely you'll be given a lot of a drug called diamorphine. Diamorphine is heroin. It's much better heroin than you'll ever buy on the streets, because it's medically pure, right? People are given that for quite a long period. If any of you have got a grandmother who's had a hip replacement operation, your grandmother's taken heroin, right? If what we think about addiction is right, that it's caused by the chemical hooks, what should happen to all these people who are being exposed to chemical hooks in hospitals? Significant numbers of them should be becoming addicted. It's been studied, virtually never happens, it's exceptionally rare. And when I learned that, it seemed so odd. Yeah, I honestly, I, I didn't think it was true. I thought it couldn't be true, but then I looked at a lot of the science. And I only began to understand it when I, I went to Vancouver 
and interviewed this amazing professor of psychology there called Bruce Alexander. He told me about an experiment he did. He explained in, in the, this theory we have about addiction, that it's caused by the drug, right? The person takes the drug, they go crazy. Um, or they become addicted, comes from a, a series of experiments that were done earlier in the 20th century. They're, they're really simple experiments. You take a rat and you put it in a cage and you give it two water bottles. One is just water and the other is water laced with either heroin or cocaine. If you do that, the rat will almost always prefer the drugged water and almost always kill itself quite quickly. So there you go. That's our story, right? But in the 70s, Bruce came along and said, well, hang on a minute. We put this rat alone in an empty cage where it's got nothing else to do. What would happen if we did this differently? So he built a cage that he called Rat Park, which is basically like heaven for rats, right? They've got loads of friends, they've got loads of cheese, they've got loads of coloured balls, they can have loads of sex. And they've got both the water bottles, the normal water and the drug water, but this is the fascinating thing. In Rat Park, they don't like the drugged water. They almost never use it. None of them ever use it compulsively. None of them ever overdose. And this... Now, to relate that to what's going on with Spice, I can tell you, those people who are losing their shit on Spice, and there was a real problem there, they are not people who had perfectly happy lives the day before. Why are they seeking the most powerful consciousness obliterating uh, chemicals they can find? It's because they are in terrible and profound pain, and they are trying to treat that pain. Now, they're not trying to treat their pain the right way. Of course, this is not the solution. But we've got to be looking at the source of the pain. Why is it rising now? You may have noticed that things have become pretty bad in Britain for a lot of people, right? This is a reaction to the profound pain and distress in our society. So what you're seeing is not the effect of the drug. You're seeing the effect of the drug plus profound pain, disorientation and distress. I think I know a bunch of 16-year-olds who will argue with you about that, to be honest. They use recreational. But also, I, I do think, yeah, but they'll still go nuts on it. It's, you know, it's... It, Spice particularly, it depends what one you're buying. If it's man, you've heard of the mambulance in Wolverhampton was particularly hit by this spice. I mean, the, the prison there is overrun with it. In, and in it, your... it sends people nuts. It does. You can't argue. It does. It sends you crazy. You could, no, no one knows how they're going to react on spice. Smoke cannabis all day. And yeah, I agree. You can, you can be chilled out. You can be stoned. Someone might throw a whitey. But spice is particularly bad for making people react badly to it. There's, there's a long history of people saying... There's this drug that people react uniquely badly to. It's happened hundreds right, of times. Absolutely. And it's no, been studied hundreds of times. Yeah, and now, you can okay, tie it to race too. But, but, but we're speaking again, we're speaking across purposes because there's, there's two things I'll just say quickly and then I promise yeah. I'll shut up. One is, um, one is you, you mentioned recreational use. It's important to say, this is the point I'm making. The vast majority of people who use the drugs, like the 16-year-olds you're talking about who are saying they just do it to have fun. I don't think they should be doing it. But uh, that, that's, the, that's the norm for almost all drugs. That there are people who are losing their shit on this. You mentioned prisons. People in prison have a really good reason to feel like shit and seek an anaesthetic, especially in the overcrowded, catastrophic prisons we have in Britain where we offer no rehabilitation. It's very understandable why people are doing that. That is, again, I'm not disagreeing that people use a small proportion of this drug, as with all drugs, uh, some people lose it. What I'm saying is that is not solely the effect of the drug. It's the effect of the drug plus profound distress. And, and it's very dangerous to say there's this one uniquely evil substance. Well, I'm not saying that there's one uniquely bad substance. I think all drugs, same with alcohol, used to... Chocolate. 
you know, some people can get very overweight from eating chocolate. I think anything in bad proportion, it can be bad for you. But also, there are certain drugs, and I think it's across the board that it makes you behave differently. You know, you mentioned it does. The, the example you gave of that is meth. It's worth saying. Crystal meth is, uh, methamphetamine was prescribed in the 50s and 60s to people as a way, uh, people with narcolepsy and also people as a weight loss drug. It didn't have any of these effects. So one of the drugs that you named as yeah, because one they of the knew what they were taking. Clean. They're not buying it off the street. I don't Someone think that's the sole to, reason. Cutting it. You're right, but you're right that contamination does have a negative effect. But that's not the main reason. The main reason is if you have a relatively happy life and you take methamphetamine to lose weight, you're not desperately unhappy. You won't suddenly seek that that sense that that sensation all the time. You won't seek to numb and anaesthetize yourself all the time. The key component, you're, you're totally right, contamination is a problem and people not knowing what they're taking is a problem, but it's not the sole. That's not the main driver of why some people go crazy and some people don't. No, 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 no. I just said to Neil that I didn't expect this one to be a debate. And yeah, he's <laughs> gone for it. It's brilliant. Um, and it's, it's really interesting to listen to because you are all on the same page. It's just we've got very different ways of talking about it. Because in your, in your film, A Drug, Drugs Mac with Britain, where I'll let you explain about it, but basically you, you dealt with gangs that, are, that themselves admit that they're cocaine users and weed users, and yet they're actively going out there and they're physically beating heroin users because they associate heroin with a certain demographic. And this is the point that I think Johan's making, is that the environments and the associations that we have with certain drugs come secondary to the actual stories that are behind there because I had a clip queued up to play here of a specific part of the film where there's a guy going around collecting needles. He looks like he's doing a good deed, but he's actually there kind of... His narrative is quite tricky because he's he's using very persecuting language and he he actually says that he'll go out and he'd stab his own father if he was on heroin. And you make the point specifically that what's going on in the heroin addict's life that drives them to that point. What was it like filming that and dealing with those kind of people? Um, I I mean, the thing is, I was at first as sympathetic to these lads. Um, Well, no, first of all, I was shocked to hear that they said, oh, if we use, we find smackheads, we'll stab them with their own needles. And you think, what? Like, you know, what mind sense is that ever right? Um, but then when you go out, you, they'd show me all of these needles at the back of their houses. And still, what they're doing is wrong. Like, by anyone's understanding, I'm sure it's wrong. But the fact that the needles everywhere, there's a problem. They don't want their kids playing out in the street. They don't. They, who wants that on their doorstep? I've had needles outside my doorstep um, where I used to live. And it's not nice. You don't want to see it. And so if you see someone, then they become a target. You know, fit it, if they fit that stereotype, they become a target for abuse from these idiots who, who yet are using coke themselves. This and reminds, so this... it's a hypocrisy, but it's that demonisation again. This reminds me of going to prison. And um, so I, I generally favour um, approaches to sentencing that are not making things tougher than they already are now for people committing crime. I think that I think broadly our penalties in the UK are tough enough and they don't really act as deterrent because the people who are going away for a long time have normally done something really stupid that they regret. Already a bad idea. Commit murder, you're 80%, 90% likely to get caught. You're going to go to prison for about 21 years on average. You regret it. So half the time you've killed your wife. Um, these, these are terrible crimes to commit, but the, the deterrence argument doesn't work. So you just lock up people long after the stage at which they've... Uh, uh, pose a risk to the public. But when you go to prisons and you speak to people who've committed crime, one of the things you always notice is that there's a good chunk of people in prison who are pretty tough on crime. 
they are really tough on crime. They're just not tough on the crimes that they've committed because their types of crime are okay and other people's crimes are beyond reproach. You know, they're just like the worst crimes you could possibly imagine. And, you, and the big one, of course, that you get is, you know, is anyone who's been involved in sexual offences and then the level below sexual offence. Of course, if some people have committed sexual offences, they then look down on the people yeah. who've committed sex offences against children. Yeah. And, you know, no-one will broach any conversation of the possibility that, given that half of these people were also victims of sexual abuse as children themselves, they, we should think about these things seriously and not just condemn, but also try and think about rehabilitation or, or thinking about ways of preventing those types of crime in future... Uh, they are very clear that this is just no moral absolute, let's knock it down, let's condemn. That's, we can't engage with these issues because they're people who are beyond reproach. We can't take a sensible, measured approach to reducing harm. We've just got to condemn. Mm -hmm. And that's so common, this thing of mm -hmm. even if we're involved in uh, you know, dangerous, difficult stuff, we're yeah. going to look down on other people who are involved yeah. in other stuff. Yeah. And you, your film has definitely made that point, both Drugs Map of Britain and the Philippines, because yeah. there are people in the Philippines government that are involved in the drugs trade that have used drugs themselves. Duterte. Yeah, Duterte's a bit themselves. And yet, they're the ones out there doing extrajudicial killings and also out there, you know, policing their own streets. How do we get to grips with that? On, on a street level, how do we readdress that, that false rhetoric that's coming through? I mean, I, I personally think um, that there, there's obviously, there's always going to be a hierarchy in terms of the way, it, you know, what crime is acceptable even with the criminal circles and what drugs are acceptable, so what drugs are acceptable within drug circles too. There's always going to be that. But at the same time, there's always going to be, and uh, your friend Rosario Reto, you'll know about this, <laughs> um, like your, your cartels and so on, they're extremely smart. They, they, the reason Dallas and um, parts of Texas have become distribution hubs is because they're the homes of Fortune 500 companies. Um, and it, they, distribution there is perfect, straight from Mexico. And so kids like Rosario Reto were perfect for the distribution and moving in between you know, the, uh, between the border of Mexico and the States. And what these people are perfect at doing is, um, in the same way as any branding or marketing operation would work, is you target your, your um, consumer. So, for example, in Rosalia Retta's time, it was cheese heroin. So we want to remarket heroin and make it um, appeal to the young generation. So let's make it 2 or $3 a line and um, you sell it in single wrap so it's perfect for school kids and you snort it so it's got all the glamour of, say, cocaine and so it appeals, you know, to this new generation. So then you've got a whole new generation of heroin users that before wouldn't touch it because of that hierarchy of different uses of drugs. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information, 
information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit UH1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's an interesting debate in the, in the US, which I'm not on top of, which is the idea that actually restrictions on supply of uh, painkillers in, in various pharmacies has driven, partly driven that sort of spike in use of heroin. Yeah. Um, and I'll be interested in what other people who've looked yeah. into that more I've done think a lot, about it. I've done a lot of work on that, and it's actually related again to the spice debate in an interesting way. There's this thing, that I thought what you said with Livy, by the way, was just so interesting then and so uh, so right, and I, it's so true what people in Dallas, really fits with what people in Dallas told me, but the, there's this thing going on, uh, relates to the prescription crisis, relates to spice, relates to skunk, and it, it's a little bit wonky, and I've been trying for like four years now to find a simple way to explain it, and I've not totally succeeded. But there's something called the iron law of prohibition, and the best way to explain it is, day before alcohol was banned, most popular drinks in the United States were beer and wine. Within a week of alcohol being legalized again, the most popular drinks in the United States were beer and wine, as, as they are today. When alcohol was banned, you couldn't get hold of beer and wine. Most popular drinks were whiskey and moonshine. And when you think about that, it seems really weird, right? Why would banning a drug change what drug people use? It's for a really simple, almost comically simple reason. If you imagine this bar in this bookshop, if you imagine we had to smuggle enough alcohol for that bar from Dover, right, from Calais over into Dover, we had to smuggle it and avoid detection. If we fill our wagon with, uh, or our truck with um, beer, we're going to get drink for like 100 people. If we fill our wagon with whiskey, we're going to get drink for thousands of people. When you ban a drug, there's suddenly a premium on getting the biggest possible kick into the smallest possible space, which is what is the iron law of prohibition. You only get the most potent form of the drug. Um, and and um, so sometimes you get people like Peter Hitchens, who I quite like as a person, who will say, you know, oh, you can't legalise cannabis. It's so much stronger than it used to be. Well, that's absolutely true. It's stronger than it used to be because of prohibition. Most popular way of consuming cocaine, prior, coca, prior to it being banned, was in teas, coca tea. There was also... Um, Coca tea disappeared, right? Now you're going to get powder cocaine. And then when there's a huge crackdown on powder cocaine, what do you get? An even more potent form, crack. So the reason this is related to skunk is, one of the reasons we're having this crisis now... uh, Sorry, one of the reasons this is... um, Sorry, my... uh, 
brain is dying. One of the reasons, one of the reasons this is related to the spice debate, why, why, is, why is it kicking off now in, in Manchester Piccadilly? Spice was around well before now. Spice was banned. And after it was banned, it became much more potent because of the Iron Law of Prohibition. And that's one of the reasons why it, you know, a small minority, but a significant minority of the people, a more significant minority of the people who use it are, are kicking off. The reason this relates to the opiate crisis is you had this situation in the United States where they had, uh, there's been a huge rise in popularity of prescription opiates. They're quite powerful, uh, things like Oxycontin, Vicodin. Now, the reason why there's been this huge increase is because if you, when did the increase happen? Massive increase after 2008. Can anyone think of anything that happened in the United States in 2008 that might mean a lot more people want to be anaesthetised a lot more of the time, right? People's lives have gone to shit. I spend most of my time in the United States. People are really suffering, and they're seeking out painkillers for a very simple reason. They are in terrible pain. See, and- I, I don't know if I agree, I agree with that, because, like, I mean, if you look at the rise of promethazine and codeine, that, that with the hip-hop culture, is the best, that's the biggest thing on the street with kids and it used to be seven it's uh, basically it's cough syrup and you hear like rappers like little wayne and, and people like that soldier boy going on about it all the time and getting lean that's all promethazine codeine and that used to be seven dollars a bottle over the counter well with a prescription and as soon as they banned it it was an irish company that was bringing it that it's gone i think the last time i was there and that was a couple of years ago it was like 250 dollars a tiny bottle like that and then you've got people stockpiling it and it just gives it so much more value, like you're saying, that it, when, when you've banned something, then it's a sort of after it's like gold dust. No, Olivia, I agree with you. I think it's important to distinguish two things. There's use for recreational purposes. That's 90% of everything. Go into, there's a pub just across the road. We go in there. We all know 90% of the people having a drink are having it because they're having a good time. And there'll be a minority in that pub who have an alcohol problem who need our love and support. But they're a minority. That's true of all drugs. Now, it's obviously true. You can have a big spike in recreational use because things become fashionable, because, you know, same way, you know, Smirnoff have a really good advertising campaign and more people use drink Smirnoff. That's different to a massive rise in addiction. Well, no, I I think if you once you're hooked on promethazine codeine, that's your descent then into heroin. And then you're going to start sourcing heroin in the old, good old traditional way and be buying it on the street, same as anyone else. So it's think, the beginning. It's, it's, it's that gateway thing. No, that, that's, I, don't, I think the, well, the gateway theory has been proved wrong, and I think there's lots of reasons why it's been proved wrong. I think even the language of being hooked. So what people think is, oh, there's this, you know, your body starts to desperately need this drug, and then you want more and more of it. Actually, we have... Proof that's not the case. I'll give you one example. Switzerland had a huge... Uh, yeah. One example I reported on. Switzerland had a huge... I know you've done work on this as well, Libby. Switzerland had a, a huge heroin... And I, I know you mentioned it as well, Tom. Switzerland had a huge heroin problem in the 90s. Huge problem. I'm a Swiss citizen as well as a British citizen. Huge problem in the 90s. And they tried all sorts of things, and all of them were a disaster. And then Ruth Dreyfus, who was the president of Switzerland, actually health minister, then became president. is an amazing woman. She explained to people, look... When you hear the phrase legalisation, what you picture is like anarchy and chaos. What we have now is anarchy and chaos, right? We have unknown criminals selling unknown chemicals to unknown users all in the dark. So she proposed legalising heroin. Now, obviously, it doesn't mean there isn't, like a brand, uh, there isn't like a heroin aisle in boots, right? The way it works is if you've got a heroin addiction, you're assigned to a clinic... You go to that clinic at 7 o'clock in the morning because Swiss people believe in getting up early. Um, you go there. I went to the clinic in Geneva. Um, you, you go there. You're giving your heroin there. Um, you, um, 
you, uh, you can't take it out with you, you've got to use it, a nurse will watch you while you use it, and then you leave to go to your job, because you're given loads of support to turn your life around, to get employment, to find housing. The reason I mention it in this context is, lots of people said when this programme began, understandably, they said, look, if you, one of the things they said is, we will give them whatever dose they want. And we will never pressure... We won't give them one that would literally kill them, but otherwise we'll give them whatever dose they want, and we will never pressure them to stop. What people said is, but if you give people heroin, they will want more and more and more, they'll demand more and more and more, this is not going to work. What actually happened is almost everyone on that programme chooses to reduce their drug over time and eventually stop, which was surprising to a lot of people who took part. And I asked um, Rita Mangi, who's the chief psychiatrist at uh, that clinic, the one in Geneva, was the chief psychiatrist, you know, why is that? And she said, basically, I give the exact quote in the book, their lives get better, right? And as your life gets better, you don't want to anaesthetise yourself so much. So the chemical hooks theory, which is that you need this escalating amount of chemical hooks, is simply not true. It's widely believed and it has been proven scientifically wrong again and again. The reason why people transition from oxycodone and, all, and Vicodin and all the other things, in, and I've spent a lot of time with people who've done that, uh, the reason why they transition, there's a very good doctor in Oklahoma called... Uh, oh, shit, what's his name? I can't remember. Good doctor in Oklahoma who explains this. Um, the reason why they change is they, if you're addicted to OxyContin, you want OxyContin, right? You go out onto the street. Because of the iron law of prohibition, OxyContin is insanely expensive, Heroin is really cheap, exactly. so you transition. But that's, the, that's not the hooks. That's the iron law, right? In the same way that if you get an alcoholic who, you know, if they can't get any other alcohol, alcohol they'll drink hand sanitizer, they'll drink anything, right? But you want the, the form of the alcohol that you want. People who are addicted to opiates want the opiate that they like. Uh, so I'm fascinated by this question of what we do for drugs in the middle. So we've got large segments of of people who are addicted to heroin and there's now pretty good evidence that you give them heroin um, or, or alternatives and, and combine that with treatment and, and various other things, many people will, will you know, gradually transition off. Not everyone. Some people will just be high-functioning heroin addicts for the rest of their lives. Some will be low-functioning for the rest of their lives. There's always some. Um, on, you know, most versions of, of cannabis as we use it, the harms are generally reasonably low, comparable to alcohol, although we're not quite sure yet. Evidence, people will debate it. You could then look at something that was like your regulation for alcohol. In the middle, there's this huge sort of morass of stuff that is sort of really hard to understand, and I really struggle to see how that would work and what sort of regulation would be appropriate. And... To be honest, I think that our regulation around alcohol is inadequate um, and, and various other parts of our, our economy as well, including gambling. Uh, I'm, I'm quite sort of non-liberal on this stuff. I mean, I think that advertising drives certain behaviours and it does encourage people and corporate interests do. I've, there's a chapter in my book on the involvement of companies big business in bootleg cigarettes you know when you get corporate interests with very strong commercial incentives to drive use they're really good at it if you found there were a number of markets where cigarettes weren't stole and, and illegal tobacco companies suddenly start releasing all these clothing brands you've all seen those marlboro clothing etc etc all the formula one advertising what do you think that's all about why are they selling marlboro clothing in russia before cigarettes are available there you know th there's reasons why these things happening they're clever they're effective at driving demand 
For some of these drugs, where most people will use them safely, but there are risks that some won't and won't be able to protect themselves, we need a system that helps people to be good. This is a general principle of crime prevention as well. Uh, you know, actually, it, it's of course it's it's great that most people won't you know steal stuff when it's not got an electronic immobilizer, but some people will, so it's better to have the electronic immobilizer. Um, you know, there's various things we do to protect ourselves against risk. We need to get much more sophisticated about how we deal with risk. But what does that look like for these drugs in the middle? I have honestly no idea, not being as sophisticated as others here. While you're on the subject, Tom, there's a great bit in your book as well about the drip feed regulations around certain things like manhole covers and stealing bikes. Can you explain how we've got to grips with... It's going to sound bizarre me saying that, but trust me, it makes sense. So... Um, one of the things I talk about in my book is metal theft, which was quite a big problem a few years back and still is to a degree. I mean, one of the things about metal is it, it's in lots of critical places like train lines, uh, electricity <laughs> wires, you know, stuff that kind of makes the economy keep going. Uh, but unfortunately, people like nicking it because it's pretty easy to nick and it was always pretty easy to get rid of because there were quite a lot of dodgy scrap metal dealers where you turned up and you got your cash and you legged it and then when the police came to the dodgy scrap metal dealer they were like where did where did you get all this wire from and you're like well there's this guy who get, gave it to me I, I couldn't possibly remember what he looked like and um, now what we've shifted to is a system where everyone who sells scrap metal has to uh, receive a payment in electronic format and this makes, uh, and so there's no cash payments anymore. And this means that disposing of scrap is, is just much harder. And so, again, like, you know, if you're really sophisticated and you, you can work your ways around this stuff, don't believe me, there are lots of ways. But for the average person stealing scrap metal, that's not, again, they can't, it just seems like too much hassle because a lot of people who commit crime are not career criminals. They are kids. Uh, they are people who are in urgent need of a bit of money. Uh, and so you'll find that it's just stupid stuff that people do. And so by making things a little bit harder to do, a little bit harder to dispose of, we can, we can radically sort of change the opportunities for crime in society. And there's this theory that people will go off and do other things. If, you know, we'll go off and commit other crimes if they can't commit that crime. And what we tend to find actually is, is that that's, that's generally not the case. And because so much crime is sort of incidental to people's lives you know a lot of people they they want the money but they don't need the money they see an easy picking they'll take it uh, similarly with violence i mean a lot of it's not about anything really it's not any profound eternal conflict it's you know someone looked at me funny and or someone bumped into me in a bar because they'd had a bit too much to drink and i interpret it the wrong way and da, da, da. so if we can prevent you know people bumping into each other in bars which we can do by the way by controlling alcohol consumption in smart ways um, by mixing the clientele in venues so you don't just have your hard drinkers you have people who want to get out of fights as well as get into fights in a venue you can change the social dynamics and change the risks of crime and and my book is all about the ways that we can re-engineer these sort of moments around crime to prevent crimes instead of having to just pick up the pieces after the event and spend huge amounts of money on the criminal justice system rather than intelligently preventing crime that's um, the main aspect of your book that I quote. I do quote you when I, when I do speaking events. And the reason I do that is because I, I love it when I get a cop in the audience. It's fabulous because they always ask the same question. They, 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 they all, they all, I mean, I love hostile questions anyway. They can get, you know, events can get really dull without someone who disagrees with you, can't they? But there's, if there's a cop in the audience and they say, yeah, but 
if you stop these gangsters doing that, they're just going to go off and do a load of other crime. At least this is a chance of catching them. And that is a very common police mentality. But So I, it's good that you, your book is good evidence for the fact that opportunity is not caused by criminals, it's caused by opportunity. And, and there, is no, there is no bigger opportunity than the illicit drug market. I, and I think that's true. I mean, the, the, the criminals that are making money in the UK are people dealing drugs and people involved in uh, some of the crimes that your most respectable people are involved in, including things like immigration fraud, uh, other things like that, that are happening at high scale and generally facilitated by dodgy lawyers, dodgy accountants, uh, various people in these sorts of facilitation roles. We don't pay anywhere near enough attention in crime to thinking about those enablers, the people who actually might not look like your average crook, but uh, uh, they're, they're, operating gray, they're operating illegal markets of some form. This brings me to something that I think's really understudied and poorly understood. We need to get a some sort of way of developing our knowledge about markets that have huge harms around them of different types. So we're having a debate about drugs and crime and particularly drugs. But there is prostitution, there's gambling, there's human trafficking, there's people smuggling. There are all of these crimes that in some way a form of market, there's a need, there's a demand, there's an interest on the part of people to sort of do something or have something or get somewhere. And there is a supply that helps them to do that in some way, sometimes with hugely harmful externalities, sometimes with not very many bad externalities at all. Sometimes, you know, actually people go on their merry way and, you know, the world doesn't explode. It's, we talk about people smuggling people from Libya across to Italy and uh, that's obviously something that sometimes results in people going on terrible uh, uh, boats having terrible experiences and dying. Um, in other cases you'll probably find some people who offer a very good service, uh, they take people seamlessly across the ocean and people go on to have pr productive fulfilling economic lives um, how do we get a science that starts to understand markets better and a set of policy tools and interventions where we can learn from what's worked in the different areas of illegal markets. What, can we do some crossover study from what's happened when we've legalised prostitution in certain environments and what's that done, good and bad? Uh, and can we learn from that as well as the experiments we've got in drug prevention to get better policy outcomes. I don't think we're investing anywhere near enough in thinking about this stuff. It's really complex and tricky stuff. You need your best minds on working on it. Some of it's theory, some of it's practice. It's all interdisciplinary because you need your economists, you need your psychologists, you need everyone involved. You need law enforcement, you need practitioners, you need your charities who are involved in this stuff and know people who've got problems really, really deeply. Um, but we need a, a complete change of this and we can't do any of this stuff if we're spending all of our money on enforcement and, you know, dealing with the detritus after stuff's happened and acting as if, you know, the problem will go away if we arrest a few people, because it never does. I, I think the, the, that, that point about, you know, we spend our money on the detritus, there's a place that really illustrates this. I, I don't want us to not mention this fact, because I think it's really important when we discuss addiction. The last year for which we have statistics in this country... More than 3,000 people died of addiction-related causes. That's, that's more people than died in 9-11. And the response of our government is to say, we're doing it just fine. We're getting it just right. 
And I've been to places where they had comparably high proportionate to their size deaths, and they massively reduced those deaths. And it's, it's partly um, around the, the aspect Tom's talking about, about not spending the money on the detritus. So in, in the year 2000, Portugal had one of the worst drug problems in Europe. 1% of the population was addicted to heroin, which is really amazing when you think about it, right? And every year they tried the war on drugs more, they punished more people, and every year the problem got worse. And one day the, the Prime Minister and the leader of the opposition got together and said, look, we can't go on like this, what are we going to do? So they decided to set up, they decided to do something super radical, something no one had done since the start of the drug war. They, they said, should we like ask some scientists to look at the facts? <laughs> and they, they set up this panel led by an amazing man I got to know called Dr. Huao Gulao. And they said to them, you guys go away, look at the evidence, and we've agreed in advance we'll do whatever you recommend. So they went away, they looked at all the evidence about addiction, including Rat Park, which I was talking about, and they came back and said, decriminalise all drugs, the whole lot, from cannabis to crack, but, and this is what comes to what Tom was saying, take all the money we currently spend on fucking people's lives up, on shaming them, arresting them, imprisoning them, spend all that money instead on turning their lives around. And it's interesting, it wasn't really what we think of as drug treatment in Britain, right? There was some rehab, a little bit, a little bit of psychological support, There's, there is some value in that. Biggest thing they did was a huge program of job creation for addicts. If you used to be a mechanic, they'd go to a garage and they'd say, you employ this guy for a year, we'll pay half his wages. Set up a big program of microloans so addicts could set up and run small businesses about things they believed in. The goal was to say to everyone with an addiction problem in Portugal, we love you, we value you, we're on your side, you have as much right to a decent life as anyone else. And the results are really clear. The British Journal of Criminology did the most detailed study. Injecting drug use fell by 50% in Portugal, a time when it massively rose in Britain. Overdose massively fell. HIV transmission among addicts massively fell. Street crime massively fell, which is one of the reasons why almost no one in Portugal wants to go back to how it was before. And just one last fact about that. Do you know how many people have died on the legal heroin program in Switzerland? How many people have overdosed? Nobody. Not one. Not a single human being, right? Those people who died in Britain, not every single one, but a very large number of them, those 3,000 of our fellow citizens, they should be here now, right? A lot of them should have lived and would have lived if we'd made a different choice and if we spent this money differently. There's a really, there are two things that makes me think of. One is about um, prevention and this sort of the importance of recognising that we can make different choices and prevent people from doing things and it's not a permanent, you know, people aren't destined to die of drug overdoses in the same way that people aren't destined to commit suicide. Very recently I saw that they finally put up netting around the um, uh, San Francisco Golden Gate Bridge um, to stop jumpers. And this, the, basically, you know, it's, it's hundreds of people dying each year by jump, throwing themselves off the Golden Gate Bridge, and it's taken this long to act on it. When you speak to people who have tried to commit suicide uh, after the event, they will not tell you, you know, nine times out of ten, oh, I wish it worked. I wish I'd be able to kill myself. So many of those people go on to not try to commit suicide again or to try once more and then not try again and turn their lives and have, have really much more you know, enjoyable, worthwhile lives and very productive for themselves and for society. So I think this idea that we, you know, the people are on this destiny towards these sorts of 
terrible outcomes and you know any intervention that we do is not really going to make any difference is completely untrue and, this, and I think it's really important to understand that we can do stuff about this. The second thing it made me think of was the importance of understanding the politics of crime. So when I spoke to um, uh, uh, Huao or Zhao or however, how, however you pronounce <laughs> his name, it's, uh, going to Portugal is the most painful experience ever because I speak some, some uh, Latin languages, but um, honestly, Portuguese, it's like they're speaking... Oh, just <laughs> I, the noise you have to I just can't do it. I mean, sorry for all the Portuguese people. I, I'm currently uh, practicing this method of, of yoga called the De Rose method, and everyone who does it is Brazilian. And now I just can't understand what's going on. Uh, it's probably why I'm so bad. Right, but um, watching Brazilian men in yoga pants, there's some compensations <laughs> to that, right? For you, maybe. Um, the, the, the other side um, of it, though, is to think about the politics of drug prevention and, and the and the po drug, uh, drug problem prevention, so ending prohibition, and the politics of crime reduction. What was so striking to me after speaking to Joe was the problem had become so acute in Portugal that basically middle-class people were having problems with uh, drug dependency, and it was normalised so that almost everyone knew someone who in their family had a drug problem, so that they could actually see the people so it wasn't just an abstract theoretical concept which they could just have some sort of notional view of what these drug users were like. They actually knew people. And it suddenly changed their response to them. So it started to make them realize, well, wait a second, actually that, that person isn't just someone who's trying to steal handbags all the time. You know, that's a fully rounded person with, uh, you know, who happens to use drugs and never commits any crime. And so they started to see the problem differently. And so I think the challenge in the UK is... How do we reach that tipping point without reaching that tipping point? Because I'd like to live my life... I mean, I do know people who's uh, unfortunately have lost people to drug addiction, but I'd, I'd like to live my life without not many more people experiencing that before we can do something and, to address and, these problems. I think you're so right, and this is why it's so important that we push back against the dehumanised... So in Spice, almost all the news reports have used the word zombie about people using Spice... That's a literally... De a zombie is a dead person, right? The people using Spice who are having problems, who are a small minority of the people using Spice, they are human beings with feelings just like yours or mine. In fact, they're in more pain than you and me. That's why they're using the drug so compulsively. I think it's really important we push back against that. I think there's another thing. This is a slightly deeper thing, and it's harder to deal with, um, but I think it's... I don't think we can talk about this honestly if we don't think about this dimension to it. Bruce Alexander, who did the Rat Park experiment, says, we think all the time, we talk all the time in addiction about individual recovery, right? That's valuable. But we need to think much more about social recovery. Something has gone wrong with us as a group. Something very badly wrong is, is wrong with our society. And this addiction is a symptom of that problem. It is not a coincidence. My sister lives in Leyland, right? It's near Blackpool. It's not a coincidence that there's much higher addiction in Leyland than in Crouch End, where I live when I'm in London. Because a lot more people in Crouch End, through no fault of their own, most of them are just lucky, um, through no benefit of their own, um, have meaning and purpose in their lives, they're comfortable, they're, you know, they, 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 they have jobs they care about. You, know, you don't have to spend long in Leyland, where my nephew and my niece are growing up, to figure out why a lot of people want to be out of it there. And so we need to be thinking much more about the reasons why so many people in our culture are so profoundly distressed that they are seeking to anaesthetise themselves so much of the time. 
All the places that have addiction crises have the highest level of antidepressant prescriptions. They have the highest level of anti-anxiety drug prescriptions. These, these are not coincidences, right? Um, and, and I think there's a, just as a last thought, that, that there's, there's an example from the history of this city that I think tells us something about this, right? In the 18th century, huge numbers of people were driven out of the countryside into disgusting urban slums in the East End, right? And something happened called the gin craze, and it appears to be real. It is pretty robust historical evidence for this. Lots of them, driven out of the countryside, living in these horrifying circumstances, started using huge amounts of gin, right? There's a famous painting by Hogarth, some of you will know, Gin Lane, which is a mother drinking a bottle of vodka while her baby, like, climbs over something and is falling to its death, right? That crisis was real, and what people said at the time is, look at this evil, exactly what they say about Spice, Look at this evil drug, gin. Look at what it does to people. Look at that woman with her baby falling out the window. That's the fault of gin. And if only we could get rid of gin, this problem would go away. Now, there's gin in that bar behind you, right? And none of you are going to let your baby fall out the window when you go home. It wasn't gin. It was gin plus unbelievably profound social distress for very good reasons. They lost everything that gave life meaning. They were living in unimaginably degraded and disgusting circumstances. They were right to want to, uh, to not want to be present in that situation. What they needed was social change. What they needed was a better society. I and think, though, even in better societies... I think, though, even in better societies, places that say Crouch End, and where, where was it, your sister? Leyland. Leyland. Uh, I think in Leyland, maybe it's a lot more visible because people in Crouch End have an ability to hide it and have support mechanisms, in the, and it's just not visible. And the same as, like, my heroin haters. But in Crouch End, you're not necessarily going to see the needles on your street. That's not going to upset you so much, so you don't realise what a problem it is until you're living next door to it. But you might be living next door to it in Crouch End, but it's not, you can't see it because no, that, that, there's money to hide that. that there's definitely a, a, an important truth in that. But the, the, um, I mean, there is pretty good sociological evidence that addiction is... There's very robust evidence that um, addiction is higher in, in areas of social distress. Now, you're totally right. And, and by the way, it's not just that, that people in Crouch End, you won't see the needles. They're definitely not going to be arrested, right? So we had drug addiction in my family... Um, one of who, you know, some of my family are pretty poor and some of them are middle class. Uh, the middle class um, person in my family got addicted. It never even occurred to her she might be arrested, right? It never even crossed her mind, right? Thankfully, I'm not, obviously, I don't want to, someone I love to be arrested. Whereas the poorer people in my family, that was a constant concern. And I, I don't want to say too much about that, but it was, you know, I think you understand what I'm saying. So, no, but, but, but you're, you're, you're right. And I think we, um, you know, I, I had this grotesque experience uh i was on a panel with ian duncan smith um about a year ago that's that's not the grotesque experience it was here in london and you know he was um you know talking about how compassionate he is towards people with addiction problems but uh when i asked him well do you think we should stop punishing them using the law he wouldn't say yes he thinks we should carry on he's in fact contributed to the circumstances in which a lot more people have become addicted. But what was amazing to me was when I challenged him to name, well, can you name me a place where your way of doing things has succeeded, right? Where the war on drugs has succeeded. He named Sweden. And it's really worth looking up the statistics. I spent some time in Sweden researching my book. Uh, uh, an injecting drug user in Sweden is 
40 times more likely to die than an injecting drug user in Portugal. In fact, it's almost the deadliest place in Europe to be an injecting drug user. The place that he presents as a success is the place where injecting drug users are most likely to die. It's incredible that we can have a debate in Britain where a government minister can say something so fucking ignorant and so vicious and it just passes without any comment. So thanks so much for listening. That was part one. And if we can get on it, part two would be out next week. If Nicky the producer and I can sort that out. And that is actually his full name, Nicky the producer. We just shove him in the corner with some shortbread and then get on with things because he's a magical sound monkey. Thank you so much for that, Nicky. And along with also thank you so much. My name is Ad for the artwork that you do for us. And make sure you listen to the other Distraction Pieces Network guys, which are Hardcore Listing with Christian Stew. Uh, Tuesday Night George, Jim Smallman, and Say Why to Drugs with Susie Gage, and of course, the original Scroobius Pips distraction pieces. And I think that's it. And don't forget, if you can remember as far back to the introduction, which seems like a, a hundred years ago now, uh, get down to London on November 3rd to the 5th for the Museum of Drugs to support releases, 50th birthday. So that's going to be pretty magnificent, I think. Right, that's it. So part two hopefully fingers crossed will be next week and i'll see you then thanks a lot for listening guys stay safe out there bye behind your barricades yeah but how long can i stay behind your barricades where true love seldom Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.